This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 69, recorded on Friday, October 20th, 2017. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with my regular co-hosts, Dr. Carrie Streeby. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, everyone. And Dr. Neelay Shaw. Welcome, Neelay. Happy to be here. Today, we have a, a guest with us from The Ohio State University. The Deputy Director of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Dr. Peter Shields. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, Dr. Shields is professor in the OSU College of Medicine, the Julius F. Stone Chair in Cancer Research, and the Deputy Director, as I mentioned, of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, and a world-renowned expert in carcinogenesis, particularly with respect to cigarette smoking and e-cigs, and we just had a nice lecture by him about all about that topic. So, Peter, let's start, though, with a few background things. So how did you get into or interested in medicine in general? Oh, I guess we'd have to thank my mother for that. I didn't really have much of a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Is she a physician? No, she happened to have been a hospital administrator, but I think in my family, she was probably whispering it. It seemed pretty natural for me. I mean, I like taking care of people. I, I really cherish what I've done from a public health perspective, and I think that's sort of where I gravitate to. You grew up where? Long Island, New York City area. Ah, New Yorker, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Were there any mentors along the way that sort of steered you toward either internal medicine or cancer or... And particularly research. Yeah, so it's interesting. So um, I'm sort of here today by a group of good coincidences, being in the right place at the right time without knowing about it. So... I was originally through medical school. Um, I did an interesting elective at Mount Sinai University, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where I went to medical school, uh, in occupational medicine. And those guys were really the sort of hotbed at the time of figuring out lead poisoning and asbestos and mesothelioma. And I really liked it. And I then go off to um, internship in uh, Washington, D.C., thinking I was going to go into emergency medicine. And somehow I kind of gravitated out of that. And I was sitting and doing my internal medicine residency and talking to someone on a phone. And I'm just saying to a friend of mine, you know, I'd really like to do something occupational medicine, carcinogenesis, nothing really here. And I hang up the phone and the person sitting next to me says, oh, there happens to be a guy who does an elective (laughs) down the block who's, you know, on faculty here. And so just literally by that as a coincidence. Serendipity, Um, wow. And then how I got into research was during during my internal medicine training, my outpatient clinic setting was a private practitioner who happened to have been, by coincidence, a hemonc person, but sits me down one day and says, you know, I really think you'd be a better physician if you understand research. Go to a lab for a year or two. I know that's derailing your plan to go out and make lots of money as a physician. That's a joke. He didn't say that. (laughs) He didn't say that part, but he said, yeah, it's extra years, but it really makes a difference when you need to evaluate the literature in the future. So I followed his advice. Slated to go into a sickle cell lab at, at an IH. And But I really wanted to do causes of cancer, chemical carcinogenesis. In those days, there was no internet. There was uh, Index Medicus, which probably people are going to Google now to find out what the Index Medicus is. Um, I confirm that none of your fellows ever heard of those, that term. <laughs> um, and so what happened was 
I couldn't find a good lab at NIH that would do this sort of stuff. And I, by coincidence, meet someone who I became friends with later. Um, he was a resident in occupational medicine for Johns Hopkins. I met him in Philadelphia at a meeting on a street corner. And I'm telling him this story. He's like, what are you talking about? There's Stu Yuspa and Kurt Harris and NCI. You know, they're like the fathers of this. <laughs> so I called them up, got into one of their labs, and ended up being in research. I mean, like from the first day I walked into the lab, I really enjoyed it. I loved the discovery of it. I consider it a privilege today to be paid to discover new things. Um, and it was really a lot of fun. It sounds like a common theme of your sort of development was uh, here, talking to people. Getting advice, talk, getting you know, getting directed by others, and listening to what they were saying. Yeah, that, that of course is is key. You know, the networking, right? Um, listening to people, hoping that you're in the right place at the right time. <laughs> so you spent a lot of years in in Washington D.C. area, National Cancer Institute, uh, Georgetown University, Cancer Center there. Did some training at George George Washington University right. as well, right? So, and you're in a field that's very regulatory oriented. Tobacco is something that's very heavy from government and regulation. What was all that like in that time period? Well, so I got interested in tobacco research because there was then and still now, there's a lot that we don't know about how cancer develops. I mean, we know a lot more now than we did, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, <laughs> um, and certainly enough to understand how cancer is developing. But, but back then... There was a lot we didn't know, and I kind of reasoned that if we couldn't figure out about smoking and lung cancer, how are we going to figure out about anything else we can't measure so well, like, you know, diet and breast cancer or something like that. So you have all these folks who are unfortunately are addicted and dosing themselves with high levels of carcinogens bathing their lungs. So I had human people. I don't know if there's not humans. Well, there are some inhuman people out there, too. (laughs) So I had humans, I had people, I had smokers um, who we could study and look at mechanisms, look for biomarkers that might predict who's at more risk of cancer. We're looking at a lot of genetics. And so that's how I got into that field. But So, I mean, you're obviously very data-driven, but a lot of regulation or um, laws isn't always data-driven. How have you dealt with that sort of conflict? So in the last five or six years, the tobacco control research effort has changed in many ways. So Congress got permission, got the authority to, or gave the authority to the Food and Drug Administration to regulate tobacco products, um, to do whatever they can to reduce the public health burden of these products, up to and including regulating how a cigarette might be designed. So for example, it may deliver less of a carcinogen, or it may deliver less nicotine. Um, today, the big issue is uh, electronic cigarettes, which the FDA has to figure out, you know, how to regulate them so that they're safe. I'm not talking about from a necessarily a health perspective, but even uh, that the batteries don't blow up, you know, that they that they do what they advertise they're doing, that they're delivering nicotine or whatever. And they have to look at the safety profiles of these products as well. So what's really amazing is that to do that, the FDA, you know, we want any government agency to make policy based on sound science. And a lot of times from a public health perspective, you have to make decisions when you don't have as much information as you like. Like, so for example, how much benzene we put in the drinking water. We don't really know if that's a safe level or not, but based on all the information, we think that it's safe enough. There's all these safety factors and things that happen, you know, so that we reduce the chances of making mistakes. So from a policy perspective, you can make policy based on imperfect data. But the FDA has an added burden 
okay, which is somewhat like the EPA, but more so, is that if the FDA makes a policy that's going to impact smoking, you know that the tobacco industry is going to go after them in the courts. So first we want the FDA to have enough good data to make sound science policy decisions, but it's also got to be good enough to be defendable. And so as we're doing our thinking, we're very much in line with what the FDA wants, because I don't understand the law, but the FDA knows what type of data they need to support some policy. So what they'll do is they'll say, here's our research priorities, propose studies, and then they'll sift through them and say, this is the type of study we need to help us enact this regulation. So it's very directly translational. And I think we, we can get into the e-cigs in a minute, but from the actual smoking part, don't we know everything there is to know about smoking and how bad it is? And is there are there more studies that need to be done? Well, so that's a really good question. So do we know enough about smoking? Yes. Do we know enough to ban smoking? Yes. <laughs> are we allowed to ban smoking? No. You know, I mean, Congress has specifically prohibited the FDA from banning it. Um, there's all sorts of issues around them. I mean, for me, I think the perspective is that smoking is a disease of adolescence, meaning that they start smoking And that's as one kids. reason that we're having you on this podcast right now, because mm -hmm. it's kids. Well, nicotine is a very powerful addictive drug, maybe the most addictive drug we have, okay? And nicotine has its benefits. So it helps you think more clearly. It decreases depression. It decreases anxiety. It helps maintain lower weights. I mean, so there's a lot of good stuff about it. But the problem, of course, is that the carrier cigarettes, the cigarette smoke, is extremely, extremely dangerous. And so what happens for kids is being a disease of adolescence, they're trying cigarettes. Every kid knows that smoking is bad for you. I mean, the biggest advocates against smoking are, are the kids in the last year of elementary school. <laughs> right? They could tell you all the harms and they'll never smoke. Get them to middle school. All they do is see that 8th and ninth grader smoking, and all of a sudden they've got a totally mm. different attitude, okay? And the problem is is that kids, uh, this is going to sound kind of negative, but they all think they're immortal. Sure. They all think they can quit, quit at any time, that they're not going to get addicted. You know, they're not going to end up like that 50-year-old. They can't imagine what it would look like as a 50-year-old with lung cancer. And so they get the benefits of nicotine. You know, some kids will start to smoke. Almost all of them will get palpitations and cough and feel bad. But there's a subset of kids that that nicotine, somehow the, the goodness of the nicotine wafts through all that negative stuff. And they know from their friends that if they keep trying, they'll stop the palpitations, they'll stop the nausea, and they end up getting addicted. And that's, that's a multi-year process. It's at least two to three years, but really gets cemented in when they get to like 18, 19, and 20, especially as they leave home and they're really free to smoke. What percentage of... High schoolers these days are smokers. It's it's probably about seven to ten percent for the high school students. For the younger ones, it's probably closer to like three to four percent. And of course, let me just define that. So by smokers, I mean having tried a cigarette in the previous thirty days. Very few of them are regular daily addicted smokers. Um, they're just not there yet in their life cycle. And then there's also restrictions of where they can smoke and that sort of thing. So it's really when they get out of the high school setting that they're freely allowed to smoke and they get heavily addicted. So that's when most people pick it up later. I mean, it's looked like from your charts about 25% of adults are still smokers, which was yeah. a high number. Yeah. I thought I was pretty surprised by that. So um, it's, yeah, so it's about 28% in the 18 to 24 year olds and then it drops down to 22 mm. to 23%. It's incredible that it's high. I mean, we have some counties in Ohio where it's more than 40%. That's almost one in two people. 
who are still smoking. I mean, just culturally, it's still just very accepted. And, you know, and it's, it's a real problem is, you know, we think that cigarettes are not culturally accepted, but when you get those smoking rates, it is. And even the way I explain it for kids is that same, you know, fifth grader who will tell you how bad it is, hand them a candy cigarette, and all of a sudden they'll smoke and say, aren't I cool? Mm. You know, they'll be like waving and pretending they're smoking. I mean, they get that from movies and ads and that sort of thing. So, so there's that coolness to smoking. You know, that then translates older where, you know, they, it's like, you know, there's the sexy, smoky bars, right? That's that's in the movies. You know, the Casablanca sort of right, thing. Right. Well, of course, you know, if you go to a bar where there's still cigarette smoking, it's not sexy or cool. It's, <laughs> it smells really bad. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's disgusting. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Talking about um, adolescence, uh, you know, I always wonder about the socioeconomic. And I think that's a big reason why oftentimes, you know, we who are higher in that socioeconomic level, we aren't as exposed to it. What does that translate to for adolescents? Are are teens and and preteens who are at poorer schools or in poorer communities yes. are they more likely to smoke and or use other products compared to uh, you know people in the in uh, Arlington or or a suburb? Yes, yeah, so you definitely see the socioeconomic status as being a predictor. An important predictor is peer use. Mm-hmm. An important predictor is parent use too. Right. You know, and 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 it's usually the kids who don't do as well as school. Um, have more aggressive personalities, measures, that sort of thing. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's that, that one whole package. But, you know, smoking, again, nicotine is a good drug for depression, stress. I mean, I don't want mm-hmm. to get people to start using <laughs> nicotine to make it sound so good. But there's a reason. I mean, so how did this country get addicted? I mean, it was really during, you know, the, the military, the, you know, the World Wars, when cigarettes were given free to the Red Cross to give out to the GIs. And the soldiers, what a... What a great thing, right? So you're in the middle of a battle. You don't have much food. You're anxious. You're depressed. You smoke a cigarette. It's, you know, it's, it's a good device for that perspective. Again, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's all the other stuff that comes with it. And, you know, it's the account of, you know, on average, people, you know, don't live eight to 10 years as long if they're smokers. And, you know, you know, one in 10 smokers get lung cancer. And, you know, a lot of them get heart disease and strokes. And I mean, Virtually everyone who's a regular smoker will die early of some smoking-related disease. You know, that's the problem on the other end. Yeah. You've helped address some of this by uh, being instrumental in banning smoking on the Ohio State University campus. Tell us about uh, banning smoking on college campuses, even in the out-open fields. Yeah, how, so, how much um, of a challenge has there been? Has <laughs> everybody been doing that around the country? There's a, there's a large number of universities now. I mean, there's actually um, a big push around universities to do this. So... I was lucky enough to play an important role. The idea happened before I got to OSU five or six years ago. Um, but then I was sort of at the right place at the right time to uh, lead that effort with um, a, wo- a woman. Uh, her name is Connie Bain, who's, who's um, part of the Student Affairs Office. Um, so we were a good partnership because I had sort of the technical expertise and she understood OSU. Um, and we had some mini battles. The um, Both presidents at the university, both Gordon Gee before and, and, and Michael Drake now, is very supportive of the policy, so they made a lot of our barriers go away, but there's clear evidence that secondhand smoke is bad for you. So indoor air smoking, I was very active in Washington, D.C., getting the indoor air laws passed. There was a whole issue about, you know, rights and customers, and I want to lose money, but where we really, where, where we really won on was exposing the bartenders and the restaurant workers, making it an unsafe environment for them, and that was something that was hard to ultimately fight back 
and so eventually the law got passed, and that's often the way it happened. But outdoor smoking, there's no known health problems with that. You don't know what the exposure was, okay, if there's an exposure at all. But the issue is that we just want to make it harder for people to smoke because we want to denormalize it. You know, we want to say to the community that smoking's not okay, that you have to do everything you can to quit. And we had, in parallel, increased um, you know, smoking cessation clinics, medicines. As it turns out, very few people actually use it. But we were really wanted to make a, a smoke-free environment to make the statement that people have the right to, to, to smoke. I mean, that's, it's, it's legal. Um, we dealt with that all the time. Um, but OSU had the right to say you could smoke, just not on our property. Um, and so it was a strong message that we wanted to give. And there were barriers that eventually went away. There was um, there was a concern in the theater program that some some plays, you know, smoking was critical to that play. And eventually they said, yeah, you know what? In the big picture, we'll we'll deal with it. Okay. It took a little bit while for the shot and scene center to get along. You know, they have. A lot of events. So it's a basketball arena, basically. It's or, a, sorry, it's yeah. a basketball arena, but they also would do, you know, wrestling from high schools, mm-hmm. and they would have. They say a lot of people come in and do smokeless tobacco. They're coming from Southern Ohio, and you know they were they were a holdout. But at some point, President Drake basically said, "No, you're getting you're going along with the rest of the the campus." Does something happen to those who violate it, and, and does that happen very often? That's really that's an interesting question. So the answer is that there's no penalty, <laughs> and so some people. Um, well, I'll clarify that in one second. There's no penalty, so some people say, well, what's the point? The point is, is it's about the denormalization. It's about, it's not okay. So you want to sneak around the building. You know you're sneaking around the building. Um, we do have these student ambassadors who go, go around and will say to someone, you know, you're not supposed to smoke. You know, you know, I don't really care that you smoke, but it's what our policy is here. You know, we're sorry. If you're a med center employee caught smoking on campus, I forget whether it's the second or third time you get fired. You know, that's not true for the rest of the university, but the med center, that was before we even got involved. That was a med center policy. If you think about it, we decided, and we were told, but we I certainly agree with it, to not make this a punitive thing. There's other universities like Tulane, I don't know if they're still doing it, but at the time, they would give you a ticket for 25 bucks if you're caught oh. on campus. You know, so different people, but I think most universities were like, this is about messaging. It's about communication. It's not about you know, punitive. We're trying to get people to do the right thing. Right. And a lot of universities now um, have done that. Does that apply to e-cigs? It does. It does. It does. Okay. And people have said to me multiple times, this is so much better than smoking. <laughs> you know, my answer is, show me the data that this is helping people quit or reducing harm. And that will come out of the policy in a second. I mean, not that I ultimately sign the policies, but I would be a strong advocate to say that should be allowed, at least outdoors. You know, indoors is a little bit of a different thing because you have to smell the people's e-cigs and that sort of thing. Let's talk about e-cigs a little bit. I don't, I never even understood what they are. Can you describe them a bit for us and what we know about them? Yeah, so they're basically devices used to deliver nicotine. So the fundamental part of it is a battery and heating a fluid. The fluid is some combination of propylene glycol and glycerin where we eat that stuff all the time. It's generally considered safe. Who knows about when you inhale it? And then you have the nicotine dissolved in the propylene glycol and glycerin. So when the propylene glycol and glycerin get heated, it turns into a vapor, and you can inhale the vapor. And then along with that, in the e in the e liquids are you know sugar and flavors, and you can basically formulate any taste you want. And what do we know about their safety? 
So there's a lot we don't know, and the issue is, is safety compared to what? Okay, so safety compared to a cigarette? I mean, there's really very limited studies, but it's highly likely that an e-cig compared to a cigarette will be safer. I mean, you just don't get the combustion products. So there are concerns about what's in an e-cig vapor. You know, that heated e-liquids could make some, you know, bad chemicals. But virtually all of those chemicals are also in cigarette smoke at higher levels. Okay. So compared to a cigarette, it's going to be better. But if you're a never smoker, okay, so we have kids who are getting addicted to nicotine and e-cigs or just using it because it's cool. We have some, some people are buying e-cigs without the nicotine. They just think it's cool. They like the taste. They like the flavors. Okay. So we don't know compared to not putting anything in your lungs or these things toxic at all. I suspect that there's probably some inflammation. Um, whether that inflammation is clinically significant or just measurable is something that we kind of have to test. And we have studies ongoing to literally look at people's lungs who are never smokers who are using e-cigs and seeing whether we're reducing uh, inflammation or not. So it depends on the comparator. And then the other picture is, for kids, is it going to induce them to start wanting to smoke, which would be a big problem. But maybe those kids would become smokers anyway if e-cigs were never there. And I've had people say to me, and it makes sense, but things that make sense sometimes don't always turn out to be true when you do the research. But this guy was trying to argue to me that, you know, you get a kid who's likes nicotine and he loves the gummy bear flavor. There's like no chance he's going to go to a dirty tasting cigarette, <laughs> which is harsher and everything. That kind of makes sense, but maybe he tries the cigarette and gets a better dose of nicotine. You know, so it's like we can make up all these scenarios. We, you know, these things have been around now for a lot of years. We're getting good population data. Uh, clearly more kids are using e-cigs, no question. Clearly less kids are smoking, no question about that. Some people like to argue that they're related. Maybe they're not related. Uh, maybe having e-cigs is hindering a faster reduction in cigarettes. We don't know that. I think in adults, there are trials that say that e-cigs will help people smoke less or quit. But I think in the real world, it's a very small number that the trials, just like with nicotine replacement therapy, are not going to reflect the real world stuff. They'll, they'll use the cigarette, the e-cigs, and then they'll go back to cigarettes. And I think that's the data that we're starting to see from our cohort studies. So there's a lot we don't know yeah. in the, your study. And towards that question of what we don't know, you talked about this a little bit. You know, There, there are dozens of manufacturers and devices, you know, hundreds of different of uh, these liquid formulations, and now... Big Tobacco is making big investments into the game, and we all remember, you know, the the reports from you know the 50s, 60s, 70s of whenever they were engineering cigarettes to make them more addictive, to make people more inclined. What type of regulation exists on, and particularly on the the actual liquid component? You know, what's prohibiting them from uh, adjusting that to be more addictive, to be be more potent? Yeah, that's a great question. When the law was written to regulate tobacco products, part of the law, e-cigs weren't... Right, this were, was 2009. Nine, so right, e-cigs yeah. were barely on the radar screen. But the law included the, the ability for the FDA to deem regulatory authority over, over something that they would call a tobacco product. And the courts have, from different types of suits around graphic warnings, have declared e-cig a tobacco product as opposed to a device... That would be like nicotine replacement therapy, you know, or medicine, okay? So with that deeming authority, they just got the authority like two years ago. 
Or maybe it's even last year. Because I do, but I even recall then that there was still a lot of pushback from the eSig. Uh, and in fact, economy. It just, right. Yeah. So the way it works is that if you had a product on the market as of a certain year, you can continue it on. Mm. But if you want to put on a new product that's not substantially equivalent to an existing product, mm. and you have to give the FDA the data to show that, then you'd have to have special approval. So just a f- month or two ago, the FDA changed the year for grandfathering in to make it more recent. Mm. So they kind of bowed to pressure from the lobbies and Congress to include it. So right now, what's on the market is is under the regulatory authority, but not regulated. Mm. And you know the FDA will start doing that um, once they get enough data to figure out maybe some flavor shouldn't be there, maybe the voltage shouldn't be allowed to go you know higher than X. Maybe the batteries you know should not blow up in people's pants. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know things things like that. But but that's what they they've got to start looking at. Just maybe to wrap up. Uh, so the current trends or current uh, statistics about lung cancer, uh, at least for smokers, I presume, is reflecting the smoking rates from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Would that be an accurate statement? And if so, are we expecting that to go down? And and what are the, what percentage of lung cancer, how many lung cancer cases are there now? What percentage are due to smoking? And what's the survival? So I won't give you the numbers offhand for the number of lung cancer cases. It is the number one killer of cancer. Um, it's uh, number one killer of people by cancer. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. In terms of smoking-related lung cancers, virtually ninety percent of lung cancers are trackable to smoking. Smokers, former smokers, or secondhand smoke. So there's only about ten percent that never smoked before, and they usually have one of these. You know, targeted mutations in in in, in specific genes. Um, so so it's a big deal. Uh, one of the things that's been an issue recently, and something that we've been um, looking a lot at, is that one type of lung can- cancer, the squamous cell lung cancers, have been going down over time, along with decreased smoking. But at the same time, the adenocarcinomas have been going up, and we think that's because of the way cigarettes have been changing in design over the last forty years. And we're trying to, to um, uh, push the FDA to consider regulating those changes in cigarette design. You know, we're sort of trading one lung cancer for another. What's the motivation for the cigarette companies to be changing those designs to make it worse? We could be talking for 20 minutes on this, but I'll give you the, <laughs> I'll give you the, the maybe the 20-second answer. So what was, what was thought in the 60s going into the 70s was less tar from a cigarette would be less risky. And, you know, in an animal, you put less tar on the animal, they get less tumors. Okay? <laughs> and so, very simple. So, then comes along smoking machines so that they can do animal studies and cell culture studies. And they realize that by introducing these little holes in the filters of cigarettes, on a smoking machine, when it smokes the cigarette, it mixes it with air. So, by having more holes, you have a lower tar yield. So, you know, animals exposed to smoking machine yields would get less tar. But people, because they want more nicotine, smoke more of the cigarette. And it also changes the smoke chemistry so you get more of the bad chemicals. So their motivation for the tobacco industry was to advertise a light cigarette and make people think that these were safer than they really were. Because there was a lot of information at the time about how bad smoking was. So you smoke a smoother cigarette, you think it's better. You know, you get, you know, either real doctors or, or actors on TV 
saying, you know, if you don't quit, this is a better thing to smoke. And so their motivation was, was purely sales, maintaining the cigarette market. And in fact, what the internal company documents show and what they've noticed at tobacco companies is as they were increasing ventilation, they were actually selling more cigarettes because people would want more nicotine. So it worked for them. It worked for them until until people in the public health community in the in the 90s, early 2000s realized that we've got a problem with the adenocarcinomas. And in fact, the big tobacco around 2007 lost a big court case brought by the federal government for racketeering. They showed and convinced the judge who uh, said basically tobacco companies were colluding, were hiding research, but they were reinterpreting studies. They were going after researchers doing good research, all in a way of confusing the public to pretend that cigarettes weren't weren't bad for you. And they actually got convicted of um, a RICO. It was a racketeering <laughs> collusion, sort of like you know what drug like gangs, mafia. like <laughs> mafia, like the drug gangs, that sort of thing. And so the tobacco companies, I mean, it's amazing, right? That big tobacco was convicted of racketeering, but it was pretty clear. Wow. One last question. Um, I can't take credit for this. Actually, um, uh, was was asked um, earlier during the lecture, but I think for our audience, uh, for for trainees who have patients who've completed therapy and are going to be going on to hopefully living a, a long life, and for parents who are going to be dealing with uh, with their own kids, you know, they're going to see friends with cigarettes, with smokeless tobacco, with e-cigs. And what advice would you say about how to approach that, and in particular with uh, with that conversation about e-cigs. Yeah, so this is very complicated. By the way, the parents may not even realize the kids have e-cigs because the designs of these e-cigs, they look like pointers. They look like pens. Yeah. They, they're they totally disguised. So you would see it in some kid's backpack and you'd have no idea that it's an electronic <laughs> cigarette. Um, and, and I'm sure that's purposeful. So, you know, what's the advice to these kids? It's really hard. I mean, like everything else, you got to know your kid. Okay? We can't advocate for e-cigs because we don't know about the safety issue about it. But if I had a choice between a cigarette and an e-cig, and I couldn't get my kid to do nicotine replacement therapy, which would probably be never, um, <laughs> you know, then I'll choose the e-cig. I'd rather have nothing going in their lungs. You know, I mean, especially, you know, your kids who are, who are cancer survivors, they've gotten so much toxic stuff in them already. Who knows what else is going on? I mean, it's just, if I knew it was safe, I'd recommend it a second. If I actually thought that uh, that it wasn't going to be a gateway or some issue, then I would be recommending that. I mean, for adults, I think this will be helpful. We've kind of changed our thinking over the last couple of years. So officially, we just say to a doctor, you shouldn't talk to the patient about e-cigs. If they tell you that they're using e-cigs, you just tell them it's not recommended. We don't know that it's going to help you. You really should be taking nicotine replacement therapy or Chantix or Zyban or <laughs> some drug, okay? Mm-hmm we've shifted because that's not real world. The real world is they're going to use them. So we'll work with these folks. We'll try to transition them to things that we know that work. But what I say to patients all the time is if you tell me that there's a choice of that electronic cigarette or going back to smoking, I'll take the electronic cigarette. And then I'll say to them, but if you're craving, how about I give you a nicotine patch in addition to the (laughs) e-cig? So I'm trying to transition them. But, you know, so with your kid, you're trying to second-guess what they would do if there were no e-cigs out there. Would they become smokers or not? I mean, clearly this is at least a fad use for kids. The number of kids using e-cigs have been going up every year fast until last year where it dipped. So now we don't know whether that's going to be a trend downward or it's going to level off or was that just an odd year. 
you know, maybe it is, is that it was so cool and it's not turned out to be such, such a, a great thing that kids will use it, but does not as many as we were thinking before. But at the very least, for, for those kids who haven't used anything yet and might be tempted, we can at the very least say, we don't know that they're safe. And nicotine itself is still toxic. There's a lot of data about nicotine, especially on the developing brain. It's yeah. mostly from animal studies, but um, there could be adverse effects. And so, yeah, it's better for them not to have the nicotine. It's better for them not to put things in lungs. Um, and we all know that adolescents don't always listen. <laughs> so this is the trick about how well you know your kid and where you can guide them. But um, as we stand here today, you know, it's it's you can't make that recommendation. Yeah. I, I would not say to a kid, oh, you want to do that, that's that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. I mean, that would be the wrong thing to yeah, do. And if, you, if they're talking to you about it, then you really should say, look, it's not – there's no value to it. I mean, we do a lot of things that don't have value, but <laughs> but there's no value to it. So why – you know, choose something else. Yeah. You know? Did the drop in use last year correlate to those states where marijuana had become recreational marijuana become legal? I Are they just replacing <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen data. I haven't seen data either. either yeah, way. I'm not sure I believe that drop or if I do, I'm not sure it's a good thing. <laughs> well, you know, in some of the electronic cigarettes devices you can modify to put marijuana in it. Mm-hmm. And it can vape the, yep. the marijuana as well. And that's something the FDA is trying to struggle with on how to deal with that. Well, it's a really important topic. I mean, there's nothing probably that's been more important for cancer in general in our society than than uh, smoking cessation efforts, and certainly worldwide. As we were chatting earlier, in Europe, it's still a big deal. You can't go anywhere without smelling secondhand smoke. <laughs> so um, although it, the United States has gotten a lot better, that's there's still a lot of work yet to be done around the world. So we appreciate your being here and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Neelay and Carrie, for being here. We're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. And thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together. The faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.